Take your Bibles again and turn to Psalm 18. We're going to be there this morning. Psalm chapter 18. We're continuing our series that we've been going through this summer called God's Songs, Volume 1. And Jay has been bringing us through some of the psalms that are in your Bibles and some of the great truths that we can see from them. This morning we're going to be in Psalm chapter 18. I have been studying this psalm uh, for quite a while, and I've been trying to wrap my head around it, and I have been, I think I've been able to do so. <laughs> this is a very daunting psalm to cover. It's 50 verses. I'm not going to read all of them this morning. <laughs> I won't keep you that long. But I uh, just want to start out by saying this, that I think the psalm, the psalms as a whole in your Bibles is one of the most beautiful books in all of the scriptures. And I think you can see that very clearly. It's a, it has some of the most interesting words and some of the most interesting passages that we can study. And essentially, it's, it's, an, it's a big collection of Hebrew poems and songs that was used for public worship during this time. And, uh, you, these are literally, these are literally God's Songs. This is the only divinely written hymn book that we have in existence because it is God's words. Um, but I love the Psalms and I love them because they are written with just very gritty, sometimes just uh, dark, sometimes candid words, candid language, unvarnished vocabulary, you might say. Um, they are authentic. They are genuine. They are real. Uh, David was never one to sort of hide what was going on in his heart and in his life. He was expressing to God some of the deepest, most real emotions that he was going through. And I think that's what makes them so appealing and so approachable, is that these sound like something that we might cry out to God in our times of distress. You know, preachers nowadays who sort of claim that, you know, uh, faith in Jesus equals to your problems getting erased, I think they lose all credibility when they come to the Psalms. <laughs> you know, also, when they, when they say that, they also mean that you have to give them a little bit financially, and then your problems will get erased. <laughs> but I think that, too, uh, makes them lose all sense of authority and credibility when you come to the Psalms, because I think the opposite is very true, that when you align yourself with Jesus, sometimes, and I think David is a good example of this, your problems get enhanced just for the very fact that David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16 and then he went on the run for his life. <laughs> he was blessed by God and then he became a fugitive of the king after his blessing. I'm getting a little ahead, ahead of myself, but the Psalms are real about the dark times we face in this life. They are real about sort of the exhaustion that we all feel from the stresses and the pressures of this life. And I think the idea, we know that David is this quote-unquote man after God's own heart, right? We, we know that, and I, I think we sort of think that, and we think that David was this super spiritual man who is always up. <laughs> but you read the Psalms and you find out that's not true. David ebbed and flowed. He went through dark, dark seasons of his life. He often doubted God. He questioned God. He felt isolated and lonely and rejected. He felt abandoned by the very God he said that he believed in. I think that's what makes David so relatable. That's what makes the Psalms so relatable is that they sort of give us a voice. <laughs> and often I think um, when David was writing these words that says he believes in this God, or, or I look up to the hills and where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. I think he's actually trying to convince himself of that. 
If he writes down these words, I think he's trying to make himself believe in the things that he's writing. Because often he struggles with all sorts of things that are plaguing his mind. And that's where we come to Psalm 18. It's a magnificent psalm. It's a glorious psalm. It's actually recognized for a lot of its poetical beauty. You can just read it, and just from a a purely lyrical uh, standpoint, it stands out as something that uh, must draw our attention. But it's actually one of the more recent psalms. I say recent, by the, and by that I mean uh, David was older, much older when he wrote it. He was probably in his, about his uh, late 60s or so uh, when he wrote this psalm. And it's actually a copy. If you, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Second uh, Samuel 22, you'll find that Second Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 are nearly identical in uh, the words and the, the, the song lyrics there. And it's really, it's a song in Second Samuel 22 that is then made for use for public worship in Psalm 18. And that's why you kind of have some uh, differences in words and such. But in the prescript, if, if your Bible has like a prescript where it says to the chief musician, you'll note where it says that this is a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we, we're, it's kind of setting the stage for what David is doing, why he's writing. And when it says in the day, it's not necessarily a Monday or a Tuesday. It's not a specific day. It's more he's recollecting all of the days that God has delivered him. And that's what he's doing. He's sort of taking a step back. He's remembering all of the things that God has brought him through. He's remembering all of the times that he was delivered mightily by the hand of God. And that's where we get this song. It's a song of remembrance. He's reminiscing on God's great hand of delivering grace. And I think that's what we're going to see here this morning really quickly. Is that the hand of God's delivering grace in David's life, we can also see it in our own lives. So very quickly, we have to move into three truths, I think, that will show this to us. The first truth is this, a truth about grief. Look at Psalm 18, verse 4. David says, the sorrows of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about the snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. It's easy to see here what's going on in David's life. As we mentioned before, David, he didn't disguise the things that he was going through. He wasn't trying to fake it. He wasn't trying to go to God and pretend that everything was okay. He voiced his griefs. He gave uh, open, uh, he, he let his heart open to God. He was honest with God. He was vulnerable with God. God, I feel as though the sorrows of death are compassing me all about me. That word sorrows is an interesting word. It's actually um, better translated ropes or cords. So literally, David is saying that the ropes of death are wrapping themselves around me. Like a noose that was tightening around his neck. He felt as though he was dying. He couldn't hold on to this life anymore. That's just evident of David's life. He was vulnerable with God. I I was thinking that this, that when life stunk... (laughs) David let God know. He wasn't sort of uh, deceitful in saying that everything's hunky-dory when it wasn't. Look at Psalm 27, verse 9. David is very open with his emotions. Look at, look at what he says in Psalm 27, verse 9. 
He says, hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When he's abandoned by God, or when he feels abandoned, he lets God know, don't abandon me, God. Or how about Psalm 102, verse 1 and 2? Let me read those to you. Because when he felt like God wasn't listening to him, when, he, when David felt like God had somehow shut his ears, he let God know. Psalm 102, verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. He wanted God to hear him. Or even uh, some of one of the some of the darkest words. Look at Psalms six, verse six. David opens up to God and listen to these words. He says, "I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. This was a man who felt some of the severest stresses of, of this life. And he let God know. He let God know. And I think um, we have to kind of uh, see that in Psalm 18, that David is going back. He's going back to all these times when he was uh, in these really dark seasons of life. If I can imagine here when he is writing about these sorrows of death, these ropes of death encircling him, he's going back to those times when he was on the run. When he was on the run from King Saul, if you're unfamiliar with the story, I'm just going to uh, hi- briefly, briefly highlight this really quickly. Because in Psalm, or excuse me, in 1 Samuel 16, we have David and he's anointed by the prophet Samuel, right? He's anointed, he's called out, and David is just a simple farm boy at this time. And he's anointed by Samuel and he's going to be the next king of Israel. And that's when we get into 1 Samuel 17. David goes into the valley and he defeats Goliath. So we have this enormous victory. And then in 1 Samuel 18, uh, after this enormous victory by David, uh, King Saul, the, the current king of Israel, is starting to get jealous. And actually it says that in 1 Samuel 18, 8 and 9, it says, And Saul was very wroth. He was very upset. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. And that means Saul was jealous of David. He was jealous. And then in 1 Samuel 19, that jealousy explodes. And actually we read these verses where Saul tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. (laughs) David is worshiping in the palace of Saul. And in 1 Samuel 19, I'll read these two verses with you. It says, And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with his javelin in hand, and David played his hand. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So then we have that, and then so from there, and from First Samuel 20 through First Samuel 22, we really have David on the run for most of his adult life. We, in First Samuel 22, verse 1, it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
This is important because as David is on the run, he escapes to this cave, and some have called this cave this cave of emotional darkness. That David is hiding in these caves, these ruins of Adullam, and he comes here and he is taking refuge. He is on the run for his life, and we call it the cave of emotional darkness because of what we believe the psalm that he wrote while he was in there. This is Psalm 13. Listen to these grieving words. He says this, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide my face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. (laughs) David is in a cave of emotional darkness. He is despairing. Think about it. David's life has been completely turned upside down in a few short years. He goes from a farm boy working for his dad, Jesse, to now being a fugitive on the run who has tr- who uh, uh, tried to be killed by his best friend's dad. And now he's on the run for his very life. And I think when we get to Psalm 18, verse 6, where he says, In my distress, I cried to God. He's going back to those times in the cave. He's going back to those times and thinking about those long, lonely nights when he felt isolated, when he felt abandoned, when he felt forgotten by God, that God, you have blessed me, and now my problems have gotten a lot worse. He's going back to those times, and now, as we can keep reading, we will find that he is remembering those times, and he's saying, thank you for being with me. And I think very quickly that this, this truth about grief, I think this David's vulnerability here with God, his openness with God, his honesty with God is an example to us as we come to church. Chris Rock, the comedian Chris Rock, I don't like all of his stuff, of course, but he says this very astute statement in one of his stand-up specials. He says, when you meet somebody for the first time, you're not meeting them, you're meeting their representative. <laughs> That's a funny way of saying that people like to make really good first impressions, right? And often I think we do that when we come to church. I don't know about you, but there's been some times when, uh, when I was with my family up in South Carolina, we would be arguing in the car. We'd be arguing about something like my brother was in my space or I was in my sister's space and we were in the car and we're driving in and we're having a very terrible car ride to the church. And then as soon as we get into the church, we smile. Hey, how are you doing? Everything's fine. Everything's all right. Everything's good. We were just not good a few seconds earlier. (laughs) I think we do that a lot. We say, how are you doing? Everything is fine. Everything's good. We come to church this way, faking as if we have it all together, when inside, we don't have it all together. We feel alone. We feel isolated. We've promised ourselves that we would get better this week, that we would, that we would make progress, that we would not go back to that sin, but we've had another week where we go back to that sin and we feel defeated. We feel discouraged. But we come into church and we are not open. We are not vulnerable. It's because we feel like this place is a place where we have to have everything all together. Let me dispel this for you. This is a place for people who don't have it all together. And we're hearing about the God who is perfect for us. That's what the church is. The church might be the last place that we want to be, but is the exact place where we need to be. Because we're around other people who don't have it all together. I can tell you that I have felt this way. 
Trying to pretend like everything in my life is okay and smiling and shaking hands when inside I am raging. My soul is crying because I feel overlooked or alone or whatever. Let me tell you that I want to uh, make this sort of a church like Martin Luther says. Listen to this quote by Martin Luther. He says, May God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. I want to be and remain in the church and little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. That's this church. That's what the church is. It's a place for us, like David, to cry out in unison in our grief to the only God who can give us grace and forgiveness of sins. That is what the church is, and that's why we are here. And you know what? You know what the the beauty of that is? As we come to a place where other people are open and honest with the things that they are dealing with, you will find out that you're not alone. There's lots of people dealing with the same types of things that you are dealing with. You are not alone in what you are battling. And that's what the church is. It unites us in the trenches. So we have a truth about grief. But thankfully we can move into, uh, secondly, a truth about grace. Look at verses 16 through 18 quickly. David continues in Psalm 18. Look at verse 16. And he says this. He, that is God, sent from heaven above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me. For they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. You know, our cries for help here in this church, or even when we are alone, our cries for help don't just echo within these four walls. The glorious thing is that they reach God's ears. He listens to us. Look at verse 6. I love this. In my distress, David says, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. What a blessing of grace that God listens to sinners' cries for mercy. What a blessing that God condescends to us. And he's not deaf to our desperation. He is not shut off when we cry to him. He, when he, when we cry for forgiveness and cry for help, God listens. But also, as we read in these verses, God listens and he acts. He acts on our behalf. If you just look at verses 16 through 18, just look at all of the action verbs and look at who's doing the action. It's God who sent his son, God who took, God who drew, God who delivered him, God who brought him into that safe, that spacious, that large place in verse 19. It is God all the way through. God is absolutely sovereign in the deliverance of his children. He is the one that is doing the action. He is the one that is taking matters into his own hands and saying, listen, I got this. Trust in my sovereignty. That's a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to relinquish control of your life and, and rest in God's sovereignty. I can tell you because I don't like to relinquish control. And I don't think David did either. That's why he says in verse 16 that he took me and he drew me out of many waters. He felt like he was drowning. 
And all of these things that were weighing on him, he felt like he was literally drowning. I, I don't know about you, but I felt that way, literally. I have almost drowned. And I say that because, um, let me just say it this way. Um, Lydia, my 18-month-old, she is a more natural swimmer than I am. <laughs> and she's only 18 months old. Uh, that's not to say that I can't swim, but we put Lydia in the water recently, and it's like, she's like a fish. <laughs> she wants to be off of us. She doesn't even know how to tread water by herself, but she's so independent, she wants to be swimming by herself. But regardless, uh, I'm, I say that I'm just not a natural, just awesome swimmer. I never took swimming lessons or anything. But I have this really vivid memory when I was probably about five to seven. We were having this pool party at my cousin's house when I lived in South Carolina. And I remember I was playing little too close to the edge of the pool, and I just fell in. And I didn't know how to tread water, and so I was just gulping in water, just gulping in water. I was drowning. And my cousin reached down and grabbed me almost by the neck, basically, and he brought me up, and I came up spitting and coughing and spewing water. (laughs) I picture that when David says, he drew me out of the water. David was drowning, and he can't even tread this life by himself. God reached down and took him up and delivered him. What a great picture of the God who meets us. And I think this is what David is remembering, feeling like, that that God is sort of like this heavenly, this divine sort of lifeguard who reaches down and grabs him and pulls him to safety. That's what it means in verse 19 where it says, He brought me forth into a large place, a spacious place, a safe place. That's what God does for us. He delivers us into safety. And I love this last phrase in verse 19. Because we have to get, why Why does God do this? Why would God do this for someone who doubted God, for this King David who questioned, who, who ran away from God sometimes, who thought that God had forgotten him? Why would God do this? And look at what it says. He delivered me because he delighted in me. This phrase just stood out to me when I was studying this psalm recently. The fact that God would deliver me because he delighted in me. We ought to pause at the wonder of that statement. The fact that God would delight in us. We who question him. We who run away from him. We who don't always think rightly about him. We who are anxious and, and, and try to rule our own lives. We who think we are self-sufficient and take control and want to be confident in ourselves. God delights in us. That's a radical statement of the gospel. That God would deliver us because he delights in us. David knew that. He's like, I was delivered and delighted in by the God that I had doubted. That's how amazing he is. And that's what God has done for us. Can't you see it? It's so incredible that this God would reach down and rescue sinners because he delights in saving sinners. (laughs) This is the mystery of the gospel that Paul talks about in the New Testament. This is something that is illogical. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't even make sense in our own brains. That God would love this sinful world to such a degree that he'd send his son to die for it. As it says in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) But it makes sense because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. 
It doesn't make sense that God would delight in us, his enemies. We who spat on him, we who nailed him to the tree, but he delights in us so much so that he took our place of punishment. And even more than that, he bled for us the very blood that leads to our salvation. Look at Romans, or I'll just read it to you, Romans 5, 8, these glorious words where Paul, he just explodes and he says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we had made ourselves better. Not after we had gotten ourselves out of our predicament. Not after we had brought ourselves up to safety. God died for us while we were his enemies. He delights in us. And he delivers us. It doesn't make sense unless you have an understanding of the grace of God. That comes to us. And you are fully known. You are fully delighted in. And that is the truth of grace. But very quickly, we have to move on to number three, a truth about God. Look at verses one through three of Psalm 18. Because we have this grief that David expresses, we have this grace that meets him, but we have this God behind it all. And I love how David opens the psalm and he says this, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler in the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. So David, is he's recollecting all of these times when he was in deep, deep, dark seasons of life. And he's made to sort of see the God behind it all, the God who had delivered him out of it all. And I, I get the sense as you know he's using all these words, rock and deliver, fortress, strength. He's he's sort of reaching at sort of at the limits. He's kind of running out of words to describe his God. He doesn't even know how to express how good his God has been to him. I love how he resolves in verse one. He says, I will love thee, O Lord. He is resolving to love his God for who and what he is. A rock, a fortress, his strength, his buckler, his salvation, his high tower. The, the, the theme throughout all of these descriptions of his God is, is this God who is unchangeable. This God who is, as the hymn says, our solid rock. You know, in this life, in this world where everything is changing, everything is moving, nothing is forever the one place that we can go to that is unmoving, that is our eternal place of comfort is the Lord Jesus Christ, who never moves, who never falters, who never changes, who never goes away from us. He is always with us. I think that's what David is hinting at because in verses 2 and then at the end in verse 46, he begins and he kind of brackets the psalm with describing God as his rock. Look at verse 46. He says, The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. He's glorifying the God who was his place of constancy. And in that cave that we talked about, I think that's what he was being reminded of. In that cave, that time when he was in deep depression, God was with him. And look at verse 31 where he says, For who is God 
save the Lord? Or who is a rock? Save our God. There's no other place that can give you the kind of peace and comfort that God can. And I can relate to David because there's been times when I've felt like giving up on this whole religion thing. But God is the place of constancy. God is our place of confidence. Not our abilities, not our strength, not our religious uh, expertise. It is God and God alone. And He is our rock. But I think the ultimate truth comes in verse 7. Let me read verses 7 through 15 for you. David says, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion around about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And the brightness that was before him, these thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent arrows, sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of the waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered. At thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. What picturesque words. (laughs) David is using, again, the limits of his language to sort of describe the powerful deliverance of God. This isn't necessarily something that's historical. He's not necessarily describing real events in his life. He's describing in poetical language the awesome fury of God that delivers him. But on another hand, I think that these words aren't just poetic. I think they're actually prophetic. Keep your hand here. I'm going to read you... Another time, when the earth shook, when the mountains quaked, when darkness covered the earth. Because I couldn't help but think of this when I was reading these words. Stay in Matthew 18. I'm going to read from you uh, about the other time when the earth shook and all these things happened. Because I couldn't help but think of, of that place called Golgotha. Listen. Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks did rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went unto the holy city and appeared unto many now when the, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. You see what's going on here? 
I think David, in a real way, was foretelling of the day when a true and better son of David would come and he would give us a true and better deliverance. That's, that's right. He is foretelling of the day when Jesus Christ would cancel sin and complete our deliverance. Who would enter into this other time when God would bend the heavens and come down to us. I think... David's here, the psalmist's pen, is giving us a really graphic look at Jesus' coming down. Look at verse 9 and look at verse 16 of Psalm 18, where it says, He, that is God, bowed, he bent the heavens also, and came down. And then also verse 16, where it says, He sent from heaven above. That is, he came down from heaven. We can spend sermons, series of sermons on just the very fact that God came down. That fact alone makes Christianity and the truth of the Bible unlike any other religion in the world. Because other religions are going to tell you how you can be like God. But you know what the gospel does? It tells us like how God became like us. (laughs) And how glorious that is. As it says, actually I'm going to read it for you. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 where Paul says, but He, that is God, made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That's the truth of the gospel. That he doesn't leave us here to wallow in our distress, to wallow in our grief. As it says in Isaiah 53, he takes our griefs as his very own. He becomes human. He becomes a man like us. The God who made all of this dirt and this dust and this flesh comes down and he takes on dirt and dust and flesh for himself. The creator of the heavens bends the heavens and becomes a part of the very creation that rejected him. Can you think of a better truth than that? He doesn't say, be like me. He says, I have become like you to rescue you. I have reached down. He dies our death, Philippians 2.8, and being formed in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. When I read Psalm 18, I think about how God has delivered me. He didn't call me to climb up. He came down and he pulled me up. He pulled me up. He bent the heavens and he saved me. These are the incredible lengths to which God goes to save each and every one of us. So we can also say that Psalm 18 is our song. (laughs) We can recollect on it even this very day and be reminded of the glorious deliverance that God has given us. We, the redeemed, can join in this anthem because the same God that delivered David is the same God that's delivering us right now. And he's the same God who is on the throne, even when we can't see him, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we feel like we have been forgotten, even when we feel like we have been abandoned by God. He is ruling. He is reigning. He has never left us. And he wants us to be vulnerable with him. And we can say, along with David, I think that we can, blessed be our rock-like God who doesn't change, who doesn't move away from us. He is always with us. Blessed be our rock-like God. Let's pray.